Good morning. We'll be reading from Mark 15, 1 through 20. You'll find that on page 852 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Follow along as I read. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him, de- led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Are you, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom of the, at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. He knew that it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to them. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd and had Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then? With the one you, what shall I do then? With the one you call the King of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, dear Lord. This word... It guides us, teaches us about you and your son and how to live, how we ought to, how we ought to worship you, give glory to you. Thank you so much for that, Lord. Thank you for this this church building, the freedom we have in this country to worship you like this. We know all around the world that we just, that there's not freedom like this in all countries. We thank you that that the United States does not persecute us as some other countries, that we have freedom every Sunday, whenever, to come to church and worship you. Thank you for that. We pray that for the churches who are being persecuted, that they would grow ever stronger and that they would continue to spread your word, teach others who don't know about you, and spread the good news. Be a light. We pray that as Cody comes... He would also be a light and just teach us new things that maybe we haven't recognized before from your word as he reads Mark. We pray that as he comes, that you strengthen him and that we are all strengthened by what he has to say. In this, in this I pray, in your name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's a joy to open the word of God with you this morning. Uh, 
grateful for Brant and Bob filling in while I was away for two weeks there. Celebrate the wedding of my brother Kyle and now sister-in-law and Lindsay. And though I enjoyed the wedding and all the events leading up to it, I very much missed uh, being able to be in the pulpit. I'm excited to be back in the Gospel of Mark with you again this morning. After today, we only have two more sermons in the Gospel of Mark, and then we will spend four weeks uh, in the book of Joel. So if you've not heard a minor prophet preached before, as I have not heard a minor prophet preached before, I look forward to seeing you in a couple weeks as we explore the Word of God and that portion of Scripture. By way of introduction this morning, I thought it might be helpful to spend a few moments reminding ourselves of how we got to Mark chapter 15. It's been a few weeks since we've been here, so let's just open our Bibles now, turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 11, and I'm not going to read any specific verses as much as we're going to just sort of skim over the top and bring us up to speed on where we are in Mark 15. Since chapter 11, as you'll notice, your Bible may have the heading at chapter 11 verse 1, the triumphal entry, we have been in the last week of the life of Christ. It's not been a dull week, it's been an action-packed final week. The opposition from the local authorities, the scribes, the chief priests, which will take center stage yet again this morning, have been steadily increasing. And along the way, Christ has been continuing to teach his disciples, preparing them for his impending death, burial, and resurrection. Chapter 13 we see Christ exhorting his disciples to be on guard or to stay awake. Spiritually, that is. Not physically. For the difficulties of the Christian life that are going to come while waiting for the return of Christ yet again. Chapter 14. The final Passover. The first Lord's Supper. The denial of Peter and the other disciples. The arrest the mock trial of Jesus and jury by the Jewish council. And that brings us up now to Mark chapter 15. Mark records a a fast-paced book, and yet again he does that here as we get into this final narrative of the trial of Christ before Rome, Pilate, and then his death by crucifixion and coming resurrection. If you're taking notes this morning, I only have two points. Uh, The first is the suffering of Christ. And the second is obedient suffering. And what I want to do is spend the first point just looking through verse 1 through 20 and noting the suffering of Christ for us. We'll see here in a minute that as we look at this passage, we have four words in red. He doesn't teach his disciples. There's some interaction here. But at first glance, it may seem as if there's very little in this passage for us and its application for today, tomorrow, this week. So we're going to look, first point, at the suffering of Christ for us. And then we're going to take the second point, obedient suffering, and really dive a little deeper as we investigate application for our lives this week. Point number one, the suffering of Christ. As soon as it was morning, verse 1, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders, scribes, and whole council. Well, if you're like me, the first question out of my lips this week was, well, why early morning? Well, the Romans would oftentimes run their trials early morning. 
they really wanted the rest of their day for leisurely activities. And so they would run their trials very early. These, this council, the elders and the scribes, they've already tried Jesus by the Jewish system, but they don't have any authority to put him to death, which is what they're interested in doing. This might give us thought of Genesis 49 verse 10, which says, The scepter had departed from Judah and the lawgiver from between his feet. The Jewish authorities at that time hadn't even recognized that they were fulfilling the prophecy of the Bible and saying that they had no authority to actually put Christ to death, but Rome had that authority by this time. So they bind him, which alone is a humiliating thing. Christ has done nothing to warrant being bound. He's not tried to run away. He's submitted himself quite humbly. And they take him to this man, Pilate. Well, who's Pilate? Pilate was a man that was ruling this district under the authority of Rome. The majority of time, Pilate would have exercised his duties in Caesarea, not Jerusalem. And yet here he's in Jerusalem during Passover in order to help keep peace during this time. Well, if the Jewish leaders had brought Christ bound to Pilate and said, he claims to be the son of God, we have religious accusations against him, Pilate would have dismissed it right out of the gate. He has no qualms with Christ. Who cares if Christ claims to be the Son of God? We're Rome. We have power. And so you see right away that the Jewish leaders shift the religious accusations in chapter 14 to more of a political accusation. So Pilate asked him, verse 2, Are you the king of the Jews? That's a direct play there on the rule of Rome. Rome didn't have much patience for those who were involved in rebellious activity. If you're king in our presence, our job is to stamp you out. So the religious leaders there of Jerusalem shift their tactics. Christ answers him humbly. You have said so. Chief priest accused him of many things. Again, we note that their accusations are false. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. Pilate himself is noting here that the man before him is not like the usual riffraff that was brought before him. Rebellious types, loud mouths, always having an answer, antagonistic. Or rather, this one stands quiet. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. If we know our Bibles well, we know that the first Adam in the garden, Genesis, chapter 1, 2, and 3, the first Adam, when he was accused didn't keep his mouth closed, started making all sorts of excuses, shifting blame. Oh, it was the wife. She's the one who gave me the fruit. Second Adam, perfect, quiet, making no defense at all. Pilate's amazed. Verse 6. Now the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. There's a lot of conjecture here, but it seems quite plausible 
that Pilate is recognizing the man in front of me is guiltless. Deserves nothing of what is happening to him. And so he shifts or seems to try to shift some of his tactics into thinking, well, I typically offer to release one person in order to sort of keep the peace in Jerusalem during this time. I'll offer to release the one person according. And of course, they'll pick Christ and they'll let him go. And yet his plan backfires. Notice seven. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder, there was a man called Barabbas. The crowd came up, began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas instead. Now Barabbas is not just a murderer and a rebel. John 18 tells us he's also a robber. And Pilate is really sort of going out on a limb here. Here he has a a man in front of him who is being accused by the Jewish system and yet has no evidence of his rebellion against Rome, he is going to condemn this innocent man to death by Roman execution, crucifixion. And he's going to release a man who has been condemned by Rome for rebellion against Rome. Crucifixion was typically reserved for those who had committed high treason Verse 16, we'll see here in a few minutes, they released this battalion, the whole battalion gathered around Christ, which would often happen when there was a rebel against Rome. We've already seen in verse 1 that he was bound. And we notice, verse 14, as the religious leaders cry out, the people cry out, crucify him, Pilate says, why? What evil has he done? Pilate is recognizing his innocence. Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Psalm 38, verse 20. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, scourges Christ and delivers him to be Crucified. I don't know about you, but when we think of the suffering of Christ, we should rightly think of the suffering of Christ, the greatest suffering of Christ being the fact that he absolved, he took upon himself the full weight, the full wrath of God intended for sinners. And yet let's not also overlook his physical suffering for us as well. This whip would often gouge so deep that it would expose bone and ligaments, at times even exposing organs. Then they take him, verse 16 through 20, and they beat him even more. Sarcastic in their mocking, the soldiers unknowingly confess the truth that he is the king. They place this purple cloak, which was reserved for royalty, upon his shoulders. They twist this crown of thorns. They beat him with a reed in place of a scepter. They mock him. Hail, King of the Jews, rather than hail, Caesar. Verse 20. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his 
clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. By this time, his appearance was marred beyond recognition. Isaiah 52 verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Unrecognizable due to the amount of suffering, physical suffering he had taken. Brothers and sisters, behold your Savior and King. This is who is described for us in Mark 15, 1 through 20. Taking on undeserved humility for us who are rarely humble. Suffering incomprehensibly in our place for His glory. Suffering perfectly, setting for us the example to look upon when we suffer even this week in our lives. Indeed, this is not simply a fantastic story, these 20 verses. This isn't some story that's just sort of made up. What makes this story compelling for us today is because it's more than a story of a man unfairly tried or unmercifully beaten. What makes this narrative, what makes this story different than any other like it is because this is the Son of God that's being beaten. This isn't some other dude that the Romans didn't like and so they hauled him out and beat him and crucified him, as was their custom. But this is the Son of God. The perfect Son of God, undeserving of everything He's taking at this moment. He's perfect. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. And He takes His place at center stage in this story when he never deserved to be in that place, and yet he took it, accepting it in obedience to the Father and love for you and me. You see, what this passage does for us this morning is it argues that we look to Christ and we recognize that he suffered in our place, setting for us an example to look upon as we follow him in obedience. So the rest of our time this morning, that's all we're going to do, is explore what implications are upon our lives this week if this is really true. And I submit to you that it is 100% gospel truth that the King of glory suffered in our place, setting for us an example to look upon as we follow Him in obedience. Point number two, obedient suffering. For us to understand what obedient suffering means, I want you to turn in your Bibles back to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, we'll just spend a moment there reading a verse or two. But you will remember in our study of Mark 8 that there's a shift in the entire book and it happens at Mark 8. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ in verse 27. Immediately following after that, Christ begins teaching That he is the son of man who must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed after three days rise again. That's verse 31. But look with me at verse 34. He called to them the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Well, when we were in Mark 8, And even this morning, the question that should ring through our heads is, what does taking up our cross, denying ourselves, following him look like? Answer, Mark 15, 
1 through 20. It's not an easy thing. It's not picking up a little burden. It's a bloody mess. It's hard. It's suffering. It's pain. It's rejection. All for the glory of Christ and the Father. In fact, taking up our cross, denying ourselves, being willing to suffer obediently as Christ suffered is not death, but actually life. Look at verse 35 of Mark 8. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever yet, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So for us to live life really live it in following Christ, we must take up our cross and follow Him. We must suffer as in like manner as He suffered. Now, not in the same way, certainly, but following His example, we will suffer. We're told this in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. 1 Peter 4.12 and 13 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So what makes a man, Christ, here in Mark 15, 1 through 20, just stand there and take it? He's being treated unfairly, he's falsely tried, he's undeservedly beaten, he's humiliated, not just emotionally, but physically. physically. What makes him stand there and take it? And the answer is love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Ephesians 3.19, the love of Christ passes knowledge. God's love for us is what makes him stand there and take it. We couldn't have even lasted a moment. I would have been saying whatever I needed to say if I had seen that whip hit someone's back before. And yet Christ took it for us. What makes us stand there and take it when people don't treat us the way they should? When they hurt us, when they speak lies against us, when they stab us in the back, when according to Matthew 5.44 they despitefully use us, they persecute us, what makes us stand there and take it? Well, we will quickly know whether or not our relationship with those people is that of love for them or selfish gain when we experience that hurt, suffering, persecution. If we're in it for what can they do for me, that'll be known in how we respond. You see, the chief priests are responding in a harsh way to Christ out of envy. So if someone isn't doing what we want them to do for us and instead hurting us and we respond in envy, it will look probably a lot like the chief priest. We can take that side as well. When I was growing up, we played a now politically incorrect game. 
We played cowboys and Indians. And have no fear. We didn't think of Indians or cowboys any less than the other. We just read history books and we decided to play them out. In fact, most of the time, it was more heroic to be the Indians. But oftentimes when we read a story, whether it's a history book or this story in Mark 15, 1 through 20, it's helpful for us to ask, who are we in this story or who would we like to be? So let's ask that question. Who would you like to be in this story? Well, you really only have a few options. Would you like to be the chief priests? Now, before you toss them out, recognize that if nothing else, their, their zealousness, their zeal, their, their envy has drawn them, has, uh, has driven them to extreme levels of passion. I don't have that type of passion. I wish I did at times. But do you want to be envious like the chief priest? Answered no. So what's another option? How about Pilate? Well, Pilate, he's inquisitive. He's interested. Tell me more. Who are you? You seem to be innocent. And yet he also is interested in power and prestige. And he has a fear of man. So are you interested in Pilate? Probably answered no. How about Christ? But instead of asking ourselves the question, who do you want to be like? Let's ask the question, who are we most like? Are we most like the chief priest? Are we most like Pilate? Are we most like Christ? And I actually think the answer is none of the above. You see, I think the answer for who we are most like most often is actually Barabbas. Now, that's not one I'm interested in, but let's look at Barabbas. His name, Bar Abbas, means son of a father. And here we have the son of a small f, father, being exchanged for the son of God. The son of the father, Barabbas, who is a murderer, he's a rebel, he's a robber, gets life by the innocence of the son of the heavenly father. I don't know about you, but most of the time, I fit more into Barabbas' camp. At least that's what my life oftentimes looks like. Rebelling against God in my sin. Thinking hateful thoughts. Murderous. Robbing God of time and the talents he's given me. And yet, what happened? The innocent Perfect son of God, the son of the heavenly father, was given for me and has set me free. And so for us this morning, what we what we need to recognize is out of this whole list of people we could be like, what we need most is Christ. But who we are most like is actually probably Barabbas. So what do we do with our sin? What do you do with your sin? Have you recognized that Christ's perfection is offered to you for your imperfection and sin? Unless unless you have been willing to allow God to make that exchange of the perfection of Christ for your imperfect sin, you are not saved. God does the work of regeneration. God does the work of that exchange. We can ask. God does the work. Have you asked? Have you seen God do that work in your life? And it's as simple as asking. Pleading in repentance. Save me, God, by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
What does that look like? It looks like humility. It looks like a recognition that you cannot pay for your sin no matter how many good deeds you do. It's a recognition that Christ is the only one who can do for you what is needed, which is to be in perfection before God. It's also a recognition that the work of Jesus Christ makes eternal demands on your life. For those who are saved in Jesus Christ, it's now not do what I want to do, but now submit to the kingdom of heaven. Now submit to the obedience required and desired by God, given to us, the grace that is given to us to obey. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on Mark 15, we should remember that Christ's death is the life of our souls, and that unless his blood has been shed, we must have perished miserably in our sins. So today, if you are here this morning and you recognize that you have not repented of your sin and not received, not accepted the work of Christ for you in faith, come talk to me. Talk to someone in the pew next to you. It's an eternal transaction that will forever change you because you're going to go from dead in your sin to life in Jesus Christ. Now, oftentimes when we, when we consolidate everything I've just said, we'll use one word. We'll say it's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's not some word that we just throw around because it's catchy or it's churchy. You're supposed to say gospel when you go to church. But we use it because it's a biblical word. Romans 1 tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. The gospel in the Bible tells us that it makes demands upon our life. The Bible tells us the gospel equips and calls us to obey God. Matthew tells us, connects the gospel with the authority of God by telling us of the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which includes his suffering at the hands of sinners in the place of ruined sinners like you and me, which is right where we're at in Mark 15, is the only fuel that works when gas is needed in the tank to get through suffering in life. Whether it's a hard marriage or hard time in marriage. Whether it's suffering from something going on in your job. From an, a family member who is a believer or an unbeliever who's hurting you. The gospel is the only fuel in the tank that works to get us through that suffering. It could be a physical suffering, a long-term illness that's just weighing on us and causing us to doubt and not believe. If you put diesel fuel in a gas engine, it won't run very long. Diesel fuel has to go in a gas in a diesel engine. Gas has to go in a gas engine. And the gospel is the only fuel that keeps us going in our suffering and life challenges. And so, if I was to ask you this morning, what is the gospel? Can you give me a biblical answer? And I don't just ask that so that you can know the gospel or have some assurance of your salvation. Because it's the gospel that fuels our suffering and how we suffer. The gospel is the fuel because it demands that we repent of our sinful attitudes and responses to sufferings and points us to look and follow obediently the example of Christ as we've seen in Mark 15, 1 through 20. 
The gospel is what constrains us from our rebel ways and empowers and energizes our obedience to God in the midst of pain and suffering. Christ's faithful suffering calls us to repent of our wrong attitudes when we suffer, whatever that suffering may be for you this morning, and we all are under some level of suffering. It calls us to stop our grumbling, our complaining, and our self-pity, our unforgiving, angry, prideful attitudes. In fact, the gospel, as it calls us to obedience in suffering like Christ... The more we seek to imitate Christ in our suffering, we can be, we can know that suffering may well increase. That the opposition that came against our Savior will inevitably come against us. Notice the chief priests. They did not like the reflection of their life in the mirror of the life of Christ. Envy. Be gone with him. Pilate. I'd rather reject Christ. So people will reject us. If we tend to push upon their desire for power or prestige or position. And so as a believer, if you're going to advance Christ in your workplace, you may very well lose out on jobs. Get demoted. Maybe even fired. Because you're pushing on their desire for power and prestige and position. What's our answer? Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, take heart this morning. Whatever your suffering is, your suffering is not in vain as a believer in Jesus Christ. It is not in vain. Now, I don't like to read long quotes, but I'm going to do it. So I want to listen. I would like you to listen carefully. This is from John Piper. Quote, Not only is all your affliction momentary, Not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when your kid dies, when you've got cancer at 40, when a car careens into a sidewalk and takes someone out, don't say, that's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you in eternal weight of glory. Therefore, do not lose heart. But take these truths and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach his word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and cared for. Our suffering, close quote, our suffering, brothers and sisters, in the path of obedience is always meaningful meaningful precisely because it follows the example of Christ's suffering. And that suffering, Christ's suffering, was eternally meaningful for you and me. Therefore, our suffering in obedience to Christ is meaningful as well. Hebrews 4.15. Whether it's your physical suffering, relational suffering, we're told, Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. That's not just 
spiritual temptation. That's also the temptation he suffered physically to, to abandon ship, to give up, to not believe. So we're not saying this morning that suffering's easy. In fact, we're saying it's bloody brutal. But what we're also saying is that we have Christ who has set for us an example to obey in his perfect suffering. And we run to Christ. We go to Mark 15, 1 through 20 and observe his suffering for us. We dive deeper into the gospel and the work of Christ for us. We sing, when my faith would fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. We, we, we run to that which calls us to look to Christ. Mark 15, 1-20 argues for us this morning that the King of glory suffered in our place, setting for us an example to look upon as we follow him in obedience. Brothers and sisters, look to Christ. Look to him in your suffering. Look to him even if you're, it seems to be Minimal right now. Your suffering seems to be minimal. We keep our eyes focused on Christ as the perfect example. And we there see the grace given to us to live in obedience. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice this morning after the perfect example of Christ laid before us. Physically suffered. Socially. Emotionally spiritually, and yet not without without sin. He did it perfectly. So we rejoice this morning to look to Christ. We ask that you would strengthen us this week to recognize the reign and rule that Christ has. That there is joy for us as the believer in Jesus Christ. Because Christ suffered on our behalf. And we recognize that our suffering is just momentary. So may we look to Christ this week, Father. And may we be willing to follow in obedience, even if that means more suffering. For your glory alone, in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.